Good morning. How are you today? You good? Isn't it great to be here? What a privilege. I sure love all of you and uh, just look forward to today. I've been getting prepared to share uh, from the book of Hebrews with you for a little while and the kind of desire and joy has been building up over time in doing that. So I want to make a connection with you before we go into that book. In Acts chapter 4, as we finished last week in that passage where they came together and prayed, we saw something beginning to brew in the book of Acts that we'll be going back to the book of Acts for to see in action in the coming months as we go through the book of Hebrews. But what we saw happening was a backlash against the gospel. And so what is coming in the book of Acts is a question. And that question is going to be, is Jesus worth it? You see, when we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 7, you have Satan working through the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, carrying out his desires, summarized in Acts 4.17, where the Word of God tells us, but in order, this is the Sanhedrin speaking together, but in order that it might not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. So what's happening is the Sanhedrin is going to push hard against the apostles and against the early church. And they're going to push so hard that a question is going to be raised in the book of Acts as the pressure of persecution begins to get personal. They will endure imprisonment, stoning, mocking, beheading. They will flee for their lives. They will lose relationships painfully, family, friends, extended relatives. They will lose their property, their homes, their inheritance. They will lose their employment. They will lose their cultural identity. They will lose their comforts. They will lose their freedoms. As this backlash comes against them, and the question will be raised, is Jesus worth it? And as the persecution becomes more and more severe, the question will be more and more asked of them. And so as that question is is brewing in the book of Acts, when we go to the book of Hebrews and we meet some second generation believers, probably written to a group of Jewish and 
proselyte over to Judaism, believers in the areas around Rome, maybe in the mid-60s A.D., probably just before the intense persecutions that come up under Nero, but after the Edict of Claudius and the pressure that's been put on the Jews and on the church, and they're considered troublemakers, and they're suffering greatly, the second generation of believers in the book of Hebrews is going to answer the question that's asked in the book of Acts. Is Jesus worth it? And so when we come to the book of Hebrews, we're answering the question that starts in the book of Acts. And the writer to the Hebrews is writing to them to answer the question in light of the persecutions, the beheadings, the stonings, the losses, the cataclysmic destruction of what life was to them. The writer of the Hebrews is going to write, that God spoke and Jesus is better. So as we come to the book of Hebrews, I want to point out a few things that might be helpful to us in opening up the pages of the book. I've, I've really been getting excited about coming and preaching this to you because I've so enjoyed as God opens up the Word to me and as, as, as He grants to me insight and understanding and just thrills my heart with Jesus. I'm really excited to come to you today. And the thing I've got to be able to do is kind of throttle this so we can work through it together and I not just kind of come up here and just pour out my heart in a way that you go, well, that's cool, but what do we do with it? Uh, I'm hoping to give it to you in a way we can kind of package up and take home and live out in the way that the writer intended in answering the question, is Jesus worth it? Now, I've entitled this series, God Spoke, Jesus is Better, for a reason. That reason is first found in the God Spoke part. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways. This is the picture of the Old Testament unfolding where Jesus is concealed, but portions of who he is and what he's going to do are revealed. The prophets speak in numerous ways. Everything from sermons to living illustrations in the life of Hosea, a sermon in the life of Ezekiel, a series of object lessons in, in the life of Hosea, a, 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 just a picture of, of the gospel as he marries this prostitute and she leaves and he's, he goes back after. God has spoken to the fathers, to the predecessors in so many ways and, and so the way that it's laid out here is, it's, it's, the word spoke here is like an I-N-G word in English. It's kind of like God was speaking. God was speaking to Moses and through him to the children of Israel. God was speaking to Samuel and through him to the people of Israel. God was speaking and he went on speaking and speaking, but 
the way that the writer writes here, he kind of changes it up in verse 2. He says, in these last days, he has spoken. No I-N-G. In other words, what he's indicating here is a final word. That Jesus is God's final word. He didn't bring God's final word. He is God's final word. I was trying to think of some way that we could illustrate that, and I was thinking back a long time ago, I uh, saw a portion of the movie The Godfather. Did any of y'all see that? Okay, we'll do confession after church. Um, the, um, the, the movie's crazy, and I'm not recommending it, but I remember one particularly gruesome part where a guy goes and he, he, he gets in his bed and there's a horse's head in the bed. It's been cut off of the horse and it's in his bed. And he, and he gets to the bed and, and the, I was thinking, you know, the horse's head was the message. It was a gruesome, incredible message. My brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we see Jesus as the message and not a pretty message. It was a gruesome message. Jesus was the message of God's love and wrath. There on the cross, God giving His Son, but there on the cross, Jesus bearing the wrath, bleeding, crushed and bruised. He is the message. And in some ways, gracious and loving, and in some ways, incredibly gruesome and and, and evoking pain just to think about. How many of you saw the movie, The Passion of Christ? Did you all see that? Did you not want to get on your knees while they were just wailing on him? When they were just whipping him and beating him? Did you not just want to fall to your knees and say, Dear God, Jesus didn't bring the message. Jesus is the message. And so... When the writer to the Hebrews looks back and uses sort of an ING form, God speaking, God speaking, God speaking, many times, many ways, then he changes a little bit and goes, God spoke. And here was God's final word. So the heading of what we'll do in the book of Hebrews is God spoke. But under that heading is what did he say? In Jesus, he tells us Jesus is better. Now this word better is a theme that spans the whole book of Hebrews. Thirteen times the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than something. And in 13 different things, what those somethings are. So he begins by laying that out, and we got it right at the end of the reading today. In verse 4, we found the first use of the word better in the book of Hebrews. Look with me there. Hebrews 1, 4. Having become as much Better than the angels. This is the first instance of the Jesus is better clauses. Thirteen times, the writer to the Hebrews will say to us, God spoke, the message was Jesus, 
And Jesus is better because, and He is better than. And there's a reason for that. As the persecution began to crush in on them, they began to look at their options. I don't know how you've dealt with things when you've had to answer the question, is something worth it before? I've watched patients go through chemotherapy. People close to me. And I've watched as they've gotten tattoos marked on their body that aim radiation treatments so that the doctors, when they bring them in, can properly aim these devices that shoot lethal doses of radiation somewhere into their body. And I've watched as their hair falls out. And I've watched as their bodies grow weak. And and I've listened to them question, I'm not sure if this is worth it. I'm getting so sick. I'm feeling so bad. I've even known people who, in the midst of it, finally said, it's not worth it. I'm not going through any more of this. Whatever is coming to me from the cancer cannot be worse than what I'm feeling. And they would give up on the treatments. There are different times that all of us have wondered, is something worth it? It seems that the longer something goes on, harder it is to give an answer. In the book of Acts, it was just starting. Imprisonment's just starting. Stoning's just starting. Backlash just starting. Fleeing just starting. But by the time we get to the book of Hebrews, it's been going on for two generations. And they're beginning to wear very, very thin. And so they're looking at their options. They're looking at going back to Judaism, going over into some mixtures of Judaism and other religions, giving up on their faith altogether, just totally forgetting that this whole Great Commission, share the gospel with people thing, kind of pulling back into their shell and not necessarily openly denying Him, but at least shutting it down so that they no longer profess faith and no longer confess Christ and no longer have any pain upon their life as a result of it. They're beginning to weigh their options. And as they begin to weigh their options, they begin to think, maybe something's better than Jesus. Maybe that old system that we were under really was better. Maybe these options that are before us are better. Maybe the comforts of today are better. And they begin to weigh these things out because they're hurting. They're tired. And in the weariness of their faith, they begin to question everything. And so God ordains by His Holy Spirit to appoint a writer whose name we do not know. To send a letter to these struggling believers in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their weariness, in the midst of the way that they are questioning and considering the things that are alternatives to this Christian faith. He writes a letter to them to say, Jesus is better. This morning, what I want to do is give an overview of the book in three parts. 
And in so doing, hopefully give you and I insight into what is coming and what the writer to the Hebrews is hoping to accomplish. So let's begin by understanding that the word better is a theme for the book. If you want to take quick notes about the word better, let me give you the instances. If you'll just grab your pencil right now, I'm going to give you these instances. I'll be pointing them out later. But I think maybe you'll start reading this week through the book of Hebrews and maybe wanting to highlight some of these. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 7, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 19. Chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 23. Chapter 10, verse 34. Chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 35. Chapter 11, verse 40. Chapter 12, verse 24. You will see that from chapter 1 through chapter 12, really nearly the end, this theme pervades the book. Jesus is better because and Jesus is better than. So let's bring all of those betters into three things. Number one, Jesus is to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who He is. Jesus is to be worshipped as a better Savior because of who He is. When the New Testament begins to unfold who Christ is to us, there are places that explicit statements about Him begin to unfold. Look with me in verse 2 of chapter 1. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. The key word here is Son. That's who He is. He is the Son of God. And so what is going to be laid out here is He is better and He is a better Savior because of who He is. He is the Son of God. And the writer to the Hebrews gives five ways that sonship is evidenced and demonstrated. First, letter A, He is the heir. Notice in verse 2, His Son whom He appointed heir of all things. Here, I don't know if you watch the news much, but every now and then, somebody comes along after someone dies. Some very rich, famous person dies. And somebody comes along and says, well, I have a claim on their inheritance because... I'm their love child. They fathered me. 
so many years ago, and I'm actually their child, and I have a claim on their inheritance. And this big media stink goes out, and if you're in line at Walmart, the covers of all that trash magazine stuff will be full of, so-and-so claims to be the heir of so-and-so, will inherit billions. And, and everybody gets in a big uproar, and all of these statements are made, and finally they do a thing called a paternity test. And after that paternity test, the news breaks out. Either their claim was legit or their claim wasn't. Either they're heir or they're not. What the Bible tells us is that Jesus is the heir of the Father. And that He is qualified as an heir First, because He is the Son of God, demonstrated in power by the resurrection of the dead. And second, because He is the one that was qualified by defeating the enemy of God through the cross on which He died. Jesus qualified as heir through His bloodline and through His work. He not only is the heir because He is the DNA of deity, He is the heir because God appointed Him heir. He said to Him in the beautiful passage, He says, Sit at My right hand until I make Thine enemies a footstool for Your feet. He tells him that he is giving him the heirship of the throne and that everyone in the universe will be in subjection to him as heir of the throne. Letter B, the writer to the Hebrews tells us this son is not only the heir, this son is the creator. Look with me in the third phrase in verse 2. Through whom also He made the world. That's interesting. The word that is used for world here means the ages. It means that Jesus precedes all creation. He is not of the created order. The entire space-time continuum, everything that exists called time and everything that exists called matter came after Jesus. Jesus was the agent and the author of all of these things. So He's not only the Son who is an heir, He is the Son to be worshipped because He made you. He made the things you love. He made the things you enjoy. He created you. And you have all allegiance unto Him as the Son. Join me as we look there through whom He made the world. This is the idea that all things were created through Him and for Him. This is the idea in the book of John chapter 1 where the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then it goes on to say, all things were created by Him. And apart from Him, nothing was created that has ever come into being. Jesus 
made all matter, all space, all time. He is to be worshipped as a son, an heir who gets everything, and as an author who made it all. He goes further in glorifying Jesus. Look at the next phrase. And He is the radiance of His glory. This is amazing. That when you see Christ, you do what John says. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the radiance. He emanated Godness in everything about Himself. So much so that in the moment of the transfiguration, God gave a glimpse of that glory. And it said that His clothing was as bright as lightning. I don't know if you've ever been going down the road at night and have lightning strike near you, but do you remember what happened the last time that happened to you? You become momentarily blind from the brightness. Jesus' glory is such emanating, beautiful radiance of God the Father that it is blinding to those who get a glimpse The Bible tells us further, letter D, that He is the exact image. This comes from the Greek word that we get character from. It's the idea of an imprint, where a coin was imprinted, it was stamped with the likeness of Caesar, so that if a person didn't actually see Caesar, they still knew what he looked like because they saw his likeness on a coin. Your understanding of what God is like does not come from having seen Him. It comes from having beheld Jesus Christ. Jesus is the stamp. He is the imprint. He is the exact character. He is the exact nature of God in visible form. When we behold Christ, who He is, what He has done, we behold God. Here, this great exact image also, letter E, upholds all things. Listen carefully. Every atom in your body, assembled by protons and neutrons and electrons, assembled into molecules, made into compounds, and running around in your body right now, keeping all systems go, all that exists because Jesus wants it to. Right now, the one we worship is enabling our worship by making the atoms and molecules of our body actually stay together. And you exist at His will and pleasure. This building exists at His will and pleasure. This town exists at His will and pleasure. This globe exists at His will and pleasure. This Solar system exists at His will and pleasure. This galaxy exists. This universe exists by one thing. Jesus Christ, by His mighty Word, is holding all things together. We are not exaggerating when we sing, He's got the whole world in His hands. And it is not like the Greek God who held the world in static on His back. That is not the picture. It is a God whose ability 
pervades everything and gives everything existence, gives everything meaning, gives everything purpose. It is all created by Him and for Him. He is upholding all things. So when we step back from the book of Hebrews, the writer starts off, and several years ago, Sherry and I and the girls, we went to Disney World in Orlando. My brother and his family graciously sent us for a week, which was awesome. They paid the whole deal. We got there. We had the meal plan. It was just awesome. It was like mouse land for me. And so it was really wonderful. And so we were spending our days going through the park and enjoying it. And, and so this one particular day, I said, okay, gang, we're going to go hit the roller coasters today. And so everybody in my family looked at me and said, no, not us, you. And so we went over to the section where they have this thing called the Rock and Roll Roller Coaster. Has anybody here been on that one? Okay, the Rock and Roll Roller Coaster. All right, now, you have to understand that in Bart's mind, Bart's a child. Okay? There's something stuck around 10. Everybody who knows me is going, yeah. Um. And so, being stuck at 10, I think that I'm going to be able to do things like a 10-year-old. So, we get to the rock and roll roller coaster, and my family begs out and says, no, thank you. And so, I said, it's just a roller coaster, okay? I mean, I remember 20 years ago going on roller coasters. And so, I, we get to the, I get on the roller coaster, and they don't tell you some of these things, okay? The roller coaster starts off, and it goes 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. I literally went, ah! <laughs> for 2.8 seconds. I had no idea that was coming. And then the first inversion that they take you on turns 4.5 Gs. That's more than the space shuttle astronauts experience when they take off. I was done. But there was no exit. When I got off the roller coaster, I'm telling you the truth. There's a long hallway. I walked exactly like this down that hallway. And I thought, what is wrong with me? I had to take some motion sickness medicine after that. All right. Now, why did I tell you that? I told you that because that's exactly what the book of Hebrews does. It goes from zero to infinity in a couple of seconds and it blows your mind. The very first thing that he does is he exalts Jesus so high, you can either refuse him or you can get on your knees, but you can't be in between. It moves you at a pace from zero to infinity and says, let me tell you why he is better. He is better. He is to be worshipped. Why? He's to be worshipped for these reasons. We are considering the Son who is the heir. We are considering the Son who is the Creator. We're considering the Son who is the radiance of the glory of God, who is the exact image. If you've seen Him, you have seen the Father. He upholds all things. And all of a sudden, it gets us off kilter and we go, wow, what do we do with that? The response is, you worship. The goal of the book of Hebrews is to return its hearers to a single passion worship of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ. Let me explain one more thing about the worship before we move on and just mention two more things in the overall picture. Come down to the passage in verse 6. This is one of those times when I like one translation better than another. The Holman Christian Standard Bible nails this translation. There are some ticky things in the passage, and one of them is that the word worship is an imperative. It is not a subjunctive. Subjunctive is let something happen, something might happen, let us do this. That's not what's here. It's an imperative. And the way that the Holman Christian Standard translates it, it says, and all the angels of God must worship Him. The very first thing that happens is that after this list is given of who He is, the speaker says that God has said that the angels must worship Him. That reflects us back to Isaiah where we see the angels worshiping God. So we learn here that Jesus is to be worshipped as God. He is deity. He is one with the Father in the Holy Trinity. And the angels must worship Him. There is a day coming, my brothers and sisters, when the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow. That means even the demons who were formerly angels of God and who left Him are going to get on their knees at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And they must worship Him. So what happens is that and we'll talk in the coming weeks, some of the religion that was creeping in as a temptation and a replacement was an angel worship. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't need to, you don't need to be worshiping at the second level here. Because the angels must worship Jesus. So don't fall into the idea of worshiping somebody that has to worship somebody. Worship Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful picture. So let's go number two. Jesus is to be trusted as a better salvation because of what He has done. After God unfolds who He is, He then unfolds what He has done. The key word here is the word offering. This is an important word in summing up what Jesus has done. Let me give you a quick overview of where those words offering are listed so you can go and look. I'm just going to give you two chapters worth real quick. Here we go. It's chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9, verse 7, 9, 14, 25, 28. That's chapter 9, verse 7, 9, 14, 25, 28. Chapter 10, verse 1, 2, 5, 6, 8, 10, 11, 12, 14, 18. Key word. Why? 
When we get into the middle of the book of Hebrews, what is going to be fleshed out is the superiority of Jesus' salvation because of what He has done. He has offered Himself. This is where we're told the blood of bulls and goats and calves can never cleanse us from sin. We're told without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then we're told that Jesus offered Himself. That He is the better offering, so therefore He is the better salvation because of what He has done. Go back to chapter 1 and see how chapter 1 is outlining all this. All of those things I told you about Jesus is to be worshipped because He's a better Savior. Well, now He's to be worshipped and He is to be trusted because of a better salvation. And this is in chapter 1. Go to verse 3. Work halfway through to one little phrase. When He had made purification for sins. Or purification of sins. This is the highlight of what He has done. He has lived sinlessly and as the divine Son of God in human flesh, living sinlessly, qualifying Himself to be a substitute, He offers Himself. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's from the order of priesthood called Melchizedek that has no origin. And He offers Himself. He is a better salvation because of what He's done. He has made you able to have your guilt removed. To have your sins cleansed. To have new, eternal life. And so the purification of sins, the key word is that Jesus offered Himself. Number three. Now, let me back up for a second before we finish. As we unfold this book, we're going to understand why the issue of worship, why the issue of trust, and then what we'll give in number three are serious elements because these are the things being put into question. Whether or not He's worthy of worship and really is the divine Son of God, whether or not He really can provide eternal salvation by the offering of Himself, And then what we'll see in just a second are the things that are put into question that they're doubting, that they're considering options. We'll worship somebody else. We'll trust somebody else. So these are things that are going to press in on them. So number three, Jesus is to be enduringly hoped in. I've made that language specific. Enduringly hoped in for a better situation. Stop there. Better situation. This is one of the key elements of the whole book. The reason that the writer to the Hebrews is writing them is they're in a bad situation. And they're looking for relief. They're suffering. They're losing their livelihoods. They're losing their lives. What was so cool at first, wow, it's exciting. There's this great fervor of new belief after years and years and years of persecution and wear and tear and harm and loss. They're weary from the battle. And their situation is dark. Having lost loved ones, having lost one's 
to persecution, having been imprisoned or having friends or family members in jail for Jesus, not being able to get a job, not being able to own land or gain an inheritance or keep an inheritance, not being able to have earthly comforts, being short on food, dads having a hard time meeting the needs of their children, Because they can't get work. Because they're branded, they're named Christian. It's wearing on them and their situation's getting bad. And brothers and sisters, there's a warning later in the book that the situation's actually about to get worse. When the writer says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, it is likely a prophetic glance at what Nero is going to do to the Christians. So their earthly situation is not only bad, the way the writer to the Hebrews writes it out, it's going to get worse. And so the option is, give up on Jesus and have your earthly situation get better. Give up on Jesus so you can be popular again. Give up on Jesus so you can get a job. Give up on Jesus so you can provide for your family. Give up on Jesus so the pressure will get off of you. Give up on Jesus so you won't be stalked and watched. Give up on Jesus so your family won't be rejecting you, disinheriting you. So Satan is laying out their options of immediate gratification of improving their situation. And the writer to the Hebrews spends a great deal of time laying out that Jesus is to be enduringly hoped for for a better situation because of, here we go, where He is taking us. Go back to chapter 1 and look with me. Notice what happens here. In chapter 1, verse 3, he finishes that section by saying, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. When Jesus left His disciples, He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, the place that Jesus is taking us is where He is. And that is to the Father. The Gospel is not the gift of heaven. The Gospel is the gift of God. He just happens to live there. It is being brought to the Father. And what's happening as their hope is tested and their situations get bleak is they start thinking, you know, we could, we could do better than this. We could get a better job. We could relieve our financial distress. We could quit all this hounding. We could be set back into the right place in society that we were cast down from. We, we, we could live without the threat of jail. We could not have this idea of shedding blood coming at us. Our situation could be radically better if we would just sort of compromise on this Jesus guy. And so the writer writes to them and says, whoa, 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 Jesus is to be enduringly hoped for. The key word here is hope. This is a powerful word woven through the Scriptures. And I want to point to a couple of instances of it, but let me give you the list of them before we close. The key word hope, is found in 3.6, in 6.4, chapter 6, verse 18, 
Chapter 7, verse 19, and chapter 10, verse 23. 3664-618-719-1023. But I, I want to take you to a particular use of this in chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. They're, they're being tempted to flee from Jesus. Jesus is to be worshipped because who He is. He's to be trusted because of what He's done. But He's to be enduringly hoped in because of where is He taking us. Well, it says in verse 18, in order that by two, this is chapter 6, verse 18, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us, this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor for the soul. You know what an anchor does. It keeps the ship from being blown away in the storm. The anchor holds so that the ship is not blown driftingly out into destruction. He says, our hope is that this Jesus, because of who He is and because of what He has done, is going to take us to where He is. Our hope, my brothers and sisters, is not to have your best life now in this world. Our hope is not of this creation. For the things which are seen are temporal. Our hope is that the Son of the living God emptied Himself, came to earth, lived sinlessly, died as our substitute, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He is there preparing a place for us so that we may be delivered from this world. And so what is happening is that Jesus is to be enduringly hoped for in a better situation because of where He's taking us. Where is He taking us? Look in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but i just got to tell you this. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and go down to verse 15. Here is this glorious picture of the saints of old dying in faith, never receiving what was promised, never receiving what was hoped for. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 11, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, that's the land of Israel, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. This is the beauty of our faith. Is that this Jesus, for who He is and what He has done, has made arrangements for where He's taking us. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the book of Hebrews. This is the endurance that is called for in this book. It is because of who He is. He's better. It is because of what He has done. He's a better salvation. And it is because of where He is taking us. My brothers and sisters, in light of those three things, do you know what the writer to the Hebrews says to us? Stop 
compromising. Stop trying to fit in with worldly comforts. Give everything up to the glory of God for the gospel to go to the nations. Give everything up. Leave earthly comfort. Leave earthly relation. Leave everything here for the sake of the gospel that all may hear of the glory of God in who Christ is, what He has done, and where He can take people. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that the three things that he mentions grant us the gift of endurance. Our ability to stay faithful to Him who is worthy of worship, to remain trusting to Him who has secured a better salvation, and to set our hope expectantly, patiently, enduringly in Him because, my brothers and sisters, of where He's taking us. And that because of those three, we should abandon the things of this world. And pursue the things of eternal value and consequence with every waking minute of every day. Would you bow with me?